0: Well, good morning, Fullerton Free. My name is Zach. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. One of the things that we do on Sunday that I greatly appreciate and enjoy is what we just did right now, which is the, the public reading of Scripture. It, it may seem like maybe a filler to our service or something that is just so simple, but it is truly an important aspect of what we do on a Sunday morning. In fact, Paul, when he's writing a letter to, first, uh, to Timothy... Uh, explaining kind of the process of leading a church, one of the things he tells them is to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. There is something important about us taking a moment to pause and actually read the Scripture aloud. It's not because we don't think that you uh, don't have 400 variations of the Bible in front of you. I'm sure you have access to every translation possible. You probably have six or seven Bibles stacked somewhere in your house It's the idea that when we read scripture aloud, it does something to us that we may miss when we're just reading it to ourselves. Our own voice, our own brain can filter uh, and make its own decisions when we're reading. But when someone else is reading and reading it aloud, there are reactions we may face and different phenomena we may experience from someone else reading the scripture aloud. You might find yourself when uh, things in the Bible are difficult or there are commandments that we don't enjoy talking about. You may find yourself cringing or tightening up or worried about what the next 40 minutes may entail as the preacher is about to dive into something we don't love to talk about. So you may cringe. You may face a little bit of knee jerking when reading the scripture aloud. You may also find yourself Wandering or nodding off when things get familiar, when phrases and terms and ver- verses you've heard a million times start to be spoken and, and your brain starts to wander. Things you probably wouldn't experience if you were reading it by yourself. There is these two different phenomena of, oh man, we're going to talk about that today. And oh yes, I've, I've heard this a million times before. I think today in our text, what has happened for for many of us who just listened to Titus 3, 1 through 7, is we may have experienced these two ends of the spectrum. That when we read here at the beginning, remind them, this is verse 1 of chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We were like, oh no, we're going to talk about that today. We don't like talking about obedience or commandments of submission to rulers and authorities. And then as we got later on in the passage in verse 4 through 7, we may have nodded off. As we heard familiar things about God saving us by his own hand and not on our own works. As we've heard things about the Holy Spirit and regeneration and how we're heirs to eternal life. And though these are powerful truths, we may have heard of them a million times in many of the classic run-on sentences by Paul that we might have started to... Wander off and drift. This morning, what I want to do is I want to bridge the gap between this tension, between the knee jerking and the nodding off, and see that there is a powerful connection between things that are commandments that we don't love to hear and the things that we may have heard a million times before. There's a reason these are paired together by Paul. There's a reason we as a church have chosen to study verses 1 through 7 together and not as separate things between the practical and maybe the more theological. There is a connection there, and that's what we're going to do today. So this first part here, uh, verse 1, this remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. I think part of the reason we may uh, tense up at this uh this verse here by Paul, is that you and I as humans are inherently rebellious. I used to work with the 5th and 6th graders here at our church, and so uh, I have seen many of your kids act out and not do as they're told and not listen to the ruler and authority in charge, purely just on the desire to rebel. No other agenda, just because we don't like being told what to do. You and I as, as adults, it's, you know, it's ignoring the speed limit. It's uh, crossing you know, things we're not, lines we're not supposed to cross or cutting the line at Disneyland when we're told not to. It's, it's inherent in us to rebel. And it's not just something that um, you know, we all observe. We all know it. We don't like being told what to do. We have a weird relationship to authority. We don't like when others are in charge, but we love it when we are the one who is the ruler and authority. And often we love when we get to watch as someone experiences the consequences of not listening to a ruler and authority. A little bit of glee grows inside of us as we watch them face the consequences. We have a weird relationship to authority. And scripture speaks to this. In fact, if we go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 3, humans are given one simple thing not to do. You're given this whole garden to delight in, this whole garden to flourish and grow and make into beautiful things that God has given them. And he said one thing, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, chapter 3 shows that our first sin was a failure to submit to rule and authority. Our first sin as humans was to seek our own authority, to take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and say, actually, I would like that authority. I would like to make the decisions on what is good and what is bad. Our first sin is a failure to submit to authority. In fact, look in uh, verse 3 here of Titus. Paul describes Uh, This past life of ours, this past life of people who now follow Jesus and who have been changed and transformed. And we'll look at that a little little bit more here in just a moment. But look what he says in verse 3 about our former selves. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's a uh, a dark perspective on our life, on the human condition, that we ourselves have been foolish and disobedient. And we don't need to look far to see that in ourselves. And I would imagine you don't need to look very far to see it in others. You probably see that first before we see it in ourselves. So Paul notices that this is our state as humans. We're rebellious. We don't like to submit. To authority, So I think that's partly why when we read something like this in Titus 3 about submission of those authorities, we're hoping for a way around this. We're, we're waiting for the, yeah, but, and we'll get there. But let's sit here for a moment in this idea of uh, our rebellious spirit. Because I think there's another portion here that Paul has to speak to. Not just based on our own human desire to rebel, but that there is something about the gospel itself, something about the story of Jesus that is inherently rebellious. And I think there's a reason why Paul, over and over again, has to remind the believers this. In fact, notice the language he has to put here. Remind them. Okay, This is something I've had to tell you before, it seems like. This is a conversation Paul has had with many of the believers, and this is another reminder. In fact, if you search our scriptures, you search the New Testament, you'll find in the letters to Timothy, you'll find in the famous passage of Romans 13, a call to submit to the rulers and authority, to the government, to those in charge. It seems like Paul has to remind us a lot. And I don't think it's just because we as humans are rebellious, but because the gospel itself is primarily a story of rejecting allegiance to human kings, to human rulers, to, uh, to others, rejecting allegiance to our sin, rejecting allegiance to idolatry, to, as Paul says in verse 3, to our passions, to our pleasures. The gospel is a release from that. And the gospel is a story of pledging our own allegiance to King Jesus. That so much of what Jesus did and said related to a new kingdom was arriving. And so, of course, our gospel is a story of rebellion. I want you to think for a moment... um, why Christians were persecuted right off the bat? What was it that that made Rome and the rulers and authorities so fearsome of this tiny little movement of Christians? Was it simply because they were teaching religious ideas? Probably not. There was all sorts of wild ideas circling the Roman Empire at the time. There was different philosophies. People would gather together and talk about their different ideas, talk about Stoicism and Epicureanism and, and all these different isms and their different ideas of how the world functioned and worked. And, and for many of them, Christianity would have sounded like it fit right in, that it was this idea of how to live your life, of, of religion. And if you're going to do that, that's great. Add it to the pantheon of, of different ideas in Rome. They weren't persecuted because of that. They weren't persecuted because they believe a guy who died on the cross saved them from their sins. That that would have been odd. <laughs> uh, they would have been mocked and laughed at, but not really a threat to the Roman Empire um, that they believed in someone like that. It wasn't because they believed salvation was free by the gracious gift of God. No, they were persecuted because they went around declaring that there was a different king; that someone else was in charge. If you want to flip here um, to Acts 17, this is this is a great passage here where we look at the reason for why the church is persecuted. Uh, Acts 17 and verse six, if you'd like to, but um, I'll read it for us as well. Um, in Acts 17. Uh, the believers are going to different towns and they're declaring the gospel truth, they're declaring this powerful message of what Jesus has done. And sometimes they'll arrive in cities and people love it, they want to hear it, they're excited, and other times not so much. And here in Acts 17, they're in the town of Thessalonica. And uh they find themselves in trouble and we'll start here in verse 6. It says so they're they're searching for them. It says when they did not find them, the Christians They dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed the dude to his house. Notice this accusation here. They are defying Caesar's decree. They're saying there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Notice what it is that causes them to be thrown into turmoil. It is that they are going around declaring there is another king, one called Jesus. And that would certainly frustrate the Roman Empire. That is why the early Christians were persecuted. It was that They were going around and making declarations of a new king, of King Jesus. And notice that this is an essential part of their gospel. That this is what they know about the Christians. That when they want to talk about them, this is what they are worried about. And this is what they are hearing from them. That there is another king. Someone else is in charge. And that would not bode well with the Romans. And not bode well with Caesar. In fact, even the language of the New Testament, sometimes we we miss it. uh, because of some of the ways we translate things in our scripture. Um, so every time the New Testament uses the word Christ, that is a title of kingship. We, we say it so often that it starts to become just the last name of Jesus or a, a nice little addition to his name, uh, that we forget that that's a title, that, that Christ, Kyrios, is a title of kingship. There's, a, uh, there's a, a Bible translation out there that I, I, I really appreciate what they do. It's called the Kingdom New Testament. And in their translation, anytime the word Christ comes up next to Jesus' name, instead of just rendering it as Christ, uh, it's translated as King Jesus. And I, I really like that. I, I think that's a refreshing thing for us to start reminding ourselves so that Christ doesn't just become another name, but a reminder of the title of Jesus. And think, I mean, if you just flip through your New Testament, think of how many times you see that appear, Christ. So think of how many times Paul and the believers would be using that as a term, Christ. King, King Jesus. This is a central part of their gospel. And if we continue along with the language of the New Testament, um, and, and thinking about this, this theme here of kingship, of uh, allegiance to a different king. Uh, The word that we use as faith uh, in our New Testament, so it's the Greek word pistis, there are certain uh, New Testament scholars who think that there are many times when it would be appropriate to translate the word faith or pistis in Greek as allegiance, that that might capture the, the idea here of what we are doing when we uh, give, put our faith in Jesus, since we put our allegiance in him, it carries that kingship language to Jesus. That not, it's not every time the word is used, but there's many times where that would fit the appropriate context to say, this is really our life to Jesus. It's an allegiance to him as king. And there's many times in our Bible that we talk about Jesus as Lord. And sometimes we start to use that as, again, it falls into just another title, just another word like Christ. But that also is a declaration of a new king, of a new Lord. A title that only Caesar was allowed to have in the Roman Empire. So every time the Christians went around and declared that Jesus is Lord... They were saying, Caesar is not. Every time they said, Christ Jesus, Jesus is king, it was a declaration that Caesar is not. So you can imagine (laughs) why following Jesus would be difficult in the Roman times. Why people would be coming after the Christians because of this declaration of Jesus And in fact, this this theme of kingdom and kingship shouldn't surprise us. You think of Jesus and his teachings in the gospel. What does he talk about the most? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that there is a new kingdom at hand. In fact, when Jesus was asked, what is his purpose? What is your mission? What is your goal? He says, I am here to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That there was something new arriving on the scene. And Jesus would talk about it like yeast and bread. That it was this small thing that was starting to grow and grow and take over. That the kingdom of God was at hand. It was Jesus' favorite topic. So these ideas of of rulership found in Jesus should, should not surprise us. This is a main aspect of the gospel. And it was something... Believers would hear over and over again. It would be something they would preach and tell others. And it was why they were persecuted. So why Paul can say in Ephesians 1. That Jesus is in charge now. All authority has been given to him. And sits underneath him. And that will be fully realized one day. And new creation. So the gospel message is about a new kingdom arriving. And as Paul would even say so boldly in Colossians 2 that that Jesus has disarmed and shamed the powers and authorities and rulers. It is no wonder why Paul has to remind them to submit, because there is something rebellious about the gospel. So then we have to ask ourselves, why would Paul be telling us to submit to rule and authority? If the gospel is about allegiance to Jesus, if it's about a new king if it's about a new kingdom arriving why should we be submissive to authority should we not seek our own should we not seek our own Christendom build our own kingdom overthrow it is no wonder that if these questions are legitimate that Paul would have to remind us to be submissive so when we ponder these questions of, of tension, if the Gospel tells us that, king, that Jesus is king and he's in charge, but Paul tells us to be submissive to other rulers, what does that look like? Why is that a part of our faith? Why are we called to submit to rulers and authorities? How do we do that practically? How do we give allegiance to Jesus, recognize his kingship, and also submit to powers and authorities? Well? When we have questions of practicality, the thing we should always consider is, what did Jesus do? What did he say? How did he act? It should always be our first, our first line of thought. What did Jesus do? Part of it is also what Jesus didn't do. You know Jesus is arriving on the scene declaring a new kingdom, but he never launched a military attack against Rome. He never launched an insurrection. And people expected it. The the Jewish followers thought this is what he was going to do as the Messiah. He was going to overthrow the government. He was going to be king. But Jesus did things differently. There's a powerful scene. uh, It shows up a couple times in the Gospels, but specifically in Mark 12. Where uh, some different people come up to Jesus and they try to trap him in a question. They ask him, Jesus, is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It was a question hoping to trap Jesus. It was a question trying to say, okay, if you tell us not to pay taxes, well, then what are we doing here, Jesus? Let's, let's get the Romans out. Like, if we're not paying taxes, if, if you think this kingdom doesn't need to submit to rule and authority, let's, let's overthrow And that would get Jesus in trouble with the Roman officials. But if Jesus said, you should, and and you should definitely pay your taxes, then the Jewish people around him would be upset. They would see him as, as just a pacifist, as someone who was not willing to deal with the problems at hand. And the brilliance of Jesus shows up where he says, it says this, but Jesus knew the hypocrisy. He says, why are you trying to trap me? He asked Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him a coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, and this is so good, this is so smart. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And it says that they were amazed at his answer, at his wisdom, that he avoided the trap. Yeah, this little coin that has Caesar's face on it, he can have that. That's great. Yeah, pay, pay the tax. That's great. Submission to authority. But then as they're walking home, they're probably thinking, wait, but give back to God. What belongs to God? What, what, man, what, what doesn't belong to God? <laughs> everything belongs to God, right? Everything is under his authority and rule. And it's Jesus' brilliant answer that shows us this connection between the tension That he can be subversive. That he can be submissive. That he can exist with the government and with the rules and authorities, but also show the real reality that, yeah, Caesar can have his little coin. (laughs) He can have this. But the reality is that everything belongs to God. Jesus displays wit, wisdom, creativity in his response He is the perfect example of what I think we are called to be through this text, an obedient rebel, an obedient rebel. He is trapped, but he gets out. He answers the question, submissive to authority, but also subversive, also displaying the gospel and recognizing the kingdom. And I think this gets to what Paul is telling the Cretans about the importance of obeying the rulers and authorities. That it is an opportunity to display the character of Jesus. It is an opportunity to keep going forward and um, and proclaiming the gospel. Think of if the Christians of the early church really leaned into the rebellious nature of the gospel, uh, it, that movement probably wouldn't have lasted very long. They knew when to be submissive and when to obey and they knew how to use that for the gospel. A few, a few years ago, uh, when I was at Biola as a college student, uh, I went on a, a summer-long trip to the country of Nepal. And it was a mission trip with, with a team of, of about seven of us, seven college students, and a real adult with us. And uh, the, the goal of this trip was that we were going to different churches in Nepal... And we were going to help train them in putting on a VBS-like thing, reaching uh, kids in the area. We were talking with a pastor from Nepal who said that the churches uh, weren't reaching the kids very well. They had great stuff for adults. Adults would show up, but, but the kids had no interest. And so our goal was to, to take something like VBS, bring it there, and let them run away with it. So we didn't want to be like... Here's our great American idea. You should take it. But we would go and we're we're like, hey, like let's play Nepali games. We'll play Nepali songs. And by halfway through leading this VBS, we'll step aside and let the leaders of the church start taking it on and and doing their own thing and run with this. And it was awesome. We had gone to different churches and watched as kids would show up and it brought in families and and different people to experience and hear the gospel of Jesus. About our fourth weekend, we were at a church that was in the middle of the city, and it had just started to grow exponentially. We had we had kids everywhere. There's kids and families, and it was growing, and it was causing chaos in the neighborhood. And we thought, this is awesome. This is great chaos for Jesus. People love this. We're all here. We're having a great time. But about halfway through our time spent at this church, we had gotten word that non-believers in the area weren't too happy and that they were ready to start contacting the authorities who in Nepal aren't fans of Christians and who are ready to contact them and shut this thing down and so we had a decision to make were we going to submit to the rulers and authorities though we didn't agree and weren't happy with it but were we going to do that for the long goal to say you know what We've, we've, we've made an impact. This church can now do awesome things with this. We're causing ruckus because we're six white people that are here and we had to make a decision or or are we going to say, you know what? No, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to do this for the gospel. And we made the decision to step away to say, you know what? Submitting to rule and authority here was the important step For the gospel. To let this church continue on in peace. To let this church continue to have good influence. To hopefully mend things with their neighbors. To hopefully share the gospel with people who wouldn't be so upset that we were causing noise. And although it wasn't very fun to step away. We knew that this was submitting to rule and authority. While also recognizing that Jesus is king. And that he will be victorious and that he will continue to work through this church that we didn't want to bring damage to them it was our hope that our obedience would be a way to increase the witness to Jesus and though it seems so counterproductive in a story of Jesus' king, our obedience to rulers and authority is for the sake of the gospel and I think that's why Paul has to remind them over and over again this um to help us understand uh, our, our, our limits and when we make these decisions, when we're obeying rules and authorities. Uh, this is a, a quote from the famous New Testament uh, scholar N.T. Wright. This is him talking about all those different passages that Paul says to submit. This is so good. This is what he says. He says, this is not a meek submission to whatever an authority wishes. But a recognition that by being Christian, one has not thereby ceased to be human. And that being human, one remains bound in ties of obligations to one's fellow humans. What I think Wright is saying there is that. Paul's commandment here is a reminder that by following Jesus, it doesn't mean we cease to be human. It doesn't mean that we cease to coexist with other people in community. It doesn't mean that we go off and we create our own little spheres and our own little communities and our own little kingdoms away from where we exist. It is a recognition to say, no, you are still a part of humanity. You still have a role to play. And then Wright goes on to say this. He says Paul's point is not the maximalist one, that whatever governments do must be right, and that whatever they enact must be obeyed, but it is the solid minimalist one, that God wants human society to be ordered, that being Christian does not release one from the complex obligations of this order, and that one must therefore submit, at least in general, to those entrusted with enforcing this order. Here's what I think he's saying. It's kind of wordy. He's saying that Paul's point here of submission to to the government is not a maximalist one in saying that, well, whatever the government says is right. But it is a minimalist one that says, consider that first. Consider submission first to be a part of society, to um, continue in the human order and be a part of this. But it is not a blank check to rulers and authorities to do whatever they want and for us to just go along with it. And that's where we move into this next part here of what Paul says in Titus. Because he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Okay, we've talked about that. It's hard. (laughs) There's a reason for it. But then this next part here, he says, but be ready for every good work. And this is where we start to say, aha, there are moments when submissions to rule and authority may be in the way and inherit or, uh, you know, cause us to, to not be able to do every good work or is not doing good work. In fact, Paul, what's interesting here is that Paul himself doesn't always listen to this commandment. That he is not always submissive to rulers and authorities. The Christians weren't always submissive. There was times when they were told, hey, we're throwing you in jail. You need to stop preaching the gospel. And what would they do? They would leave the jail and they would continue (laughs) preaching the gospel, right? So there are moments when the be ready to do every good work outweighs submission. To rulers and authorities. In fact, think of the great heroes of our faith. Many of the people we look up to are the ones who did not always do exactly what they were told, whether it's Martin Luther or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr., these people that we look up to who said, you know what? There is wrong happening, and I must do good, and I must Uh, seek the kingdom of God, and that might mean breaking a few rules here and there. And so this is the tension that we live in. But here's the thing, the way we are rebellious, the way we are both an obedient rebel is by doing good. It is not just chaos. It is the way we rebel is by doing good. Our citizenship to the kingdom of God should make us the best citizens in the kingdom of man. That our actions should always be looking for the best. Should always be looking for displaying the character of Christ to others. That, that though we are supposed to be submissive, there may be times when we must always seek the good. And that question now is how do we do that? How are we supposed to be obedient rebels? How do we have that wisdom? When do we know when we're always supposed to do what we're told? How do we know when we kind of have to act out a little bit? Do something like Bonhoeffer? Do something like Martin Luther King Jr.? When do we know that? And that's where these next last verses come into place. This next part here of Paul may seem almost out of place. But in verse 4, he says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. How do we do this? How do we have the discernment between submitting to authority, doing good, It's through the Spirit. It's through the gift of God. This text here of of the washing of regeneration and renewal, that, it's a a whole sermon there in itself. It's this image from uh, Ezekiel 36, that looking forward to the day that the Spirit would cleanse us, wash us. This isn't a reference to baptism. It's a reference to what the Holy Spirit does when he arrives in the believer. He regenerates us. He renews us. And this is what I love He's been poured out on us richly. We've got a lot of spirit available to us. And as Jesus told his disciples, He is one who will give us the word of truth, wisdom, and discernment. And so as we navigate this world, as we navigate rule and authority and kingdom, It is through the spirit that God has so graciously given us. That first part there. You and I did nothing to deserve it. As the truth of the gospel. It is by the grace and mercy of God alone. And he has poured out his spirit to us to listen and know. And have the wisdom to be able to be in a position like Jesus. And look at the tax. And give the proper response to, to be in a position where we have to say, you know what, we, we might have to break some rules here. And to also be in a position to say, you know what, at this moment, submitting to authority is for the greater good, is for the good of the gospel and for the good of kingdom. We aren't called to quash our rebellious spirit that the gospel gives us. There's a good rebellious spirit to the gospel. There is something powerful about declaring, Jesus is king. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is the sole authority. We don't want that to go away, but we have to direct it in the right direction. We must give it its proper energy to the right things. And we do it through the spirit. And so that's where we go as, as we go out. And there are many times we are faced with, uh, with rule and authority in our way, and in, in, in front of us. So seek the Spirit. Ask Him to guide you. And seek Him in other people. And there's a reason we're built in community. Because the Spirit dwells in every believer. And He may be speaking through someone else to give you the wisdom to be an obedient rebel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that, that you have disarmed powers and authorities over us. Whether that's sin or idolatry or, or just the awful leadership of humans, we're so bad at it. God, that you are in charge. You have a plan. You have a kingdom that we exist in. Lord, we thank you for the truth here in Titus that is by your mercy that you saved us. Lord, we thank you for the spirit that you did not leave us alone. That you gave us an incredible partner in this life for wisdom and discernment. Lord, may we have eyes to see, ears to hear when your spirit is calling to us, giving us wisdom. Lord, we pray as a community here, as fullerton free, that you would, Lord, that you would just place wise people in front of us, surround us with your wisdom, or that we would speak to each other in love, or that we would seek these hard things to be submissive and to be a little rebellious. Lord, we thank you for this community. We thank you for. Your Son, we thank you for your Spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.